some days, the resistance verges on rebellion. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Oh, the music is instantly recognizable, isn't it? The good, the bad, and the ugly. The music's probably more famous than the movie. And I have to tell you, the movie's pretty damn awful. My oldest son asked me a little while ago to watch a classic Western. I suggested to him High Noon. He had seen a video somewhere on YouTube. Kids today spend all their time on YouTube. They don't watch TV. They watch Netflix, they watch YouTube, they're just video streaming. That's all they do. But he'd seen something for the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he asked me, well, can't we watch this? This looks like a great movie. We were about an hour plus in when he realized there were still more than two hours to go. And he thought, can we pause? Because I don't know what the storyline is all about yet. But the good, the bad, and the ugly kind of sums up what I see as I walk through from the bunker to the station each day. What do I mean by that? Well, I passed a guy wearing a kilt and a t-shirt and flip-flops today on the way into the station. Oh, he's big. I, I would never say anything to him. And if he sees me again, I hope he doesn't recognize me and, like, punch me. But honestly, he's wearing a t-shirt a kilt, and flip-flops. I saw a couple of guys who were pretty big and buff, covered in tattoos, looking tough, and yet they had man buns. Can anyone explain to me how a man bun is masculine? Can anyone explain to me how it isn't just ridiculous? Maybe I'm being silly. I don't know. But a man bun? Really? No. No, just don't do that. As my brother says when he comes back, he spends a lot of time in Scotland where our family's from me, and he comes back with terms like, Gennady, do that. As in, going to not do that. Please don't do that. That's essentially what it means. With the man bun. Gennady, do that. Right. Right. Gennady, do that. Please. And then I saw a man who obviously spent more on his tattoos than on his clothing. Because his tattoos looked pretty darn fresh. And they were all over his body and his clothing was not. And that, my friends, was rather unfortunate. These are the things that I put up with as I walk from the bunker over to CFRA to bring you the news that matters. And sometimes I just have to vent. I'm sorry. Today's one of those days. I I just have to vent. Man buns, tattoos, kilts with flip-flops, none of it's working for me. You know, and and I watched the state broadcaster earlier today for reasons that are beyond me other than I I just like, okay, what are we talking about? Canadian politics today? Okay, flip it on, see. And they have their power panel on, quote-unquote power panel. One woman, 
Amanda Alvaro, woman that I've interviewed many times, liberal strategist, liberal pundit. I can say many things about Al- Amanda Alvaro, but one thing I can't say is that she's anything but stylish. This woman is stylish, and she dresses for her job. She dresses for TV. And then there's Tim Powers and Ian Capstick, who look like they woke up, rolled out of bed, and said, Oh, you need me on TV? Like, come on, guys. Whether you're on TV or the guy with the flip-flops and they get like, come on, step up our game a little. You're making us look bad. I'm not happy here. Just some thoughts. Last night, we talked about the issue. The story out of Regina, the University of Regina, of summer camps being segregated when it came to swim time. And I said, don't be too complacent, Ottawa. We have full-on Sharia swims here in the nation's capital. We have them at public pools. Communities across the country have these same things. I've gone to pick up my own daughter from such swims. By the way, she does not go to these swims anymore, and that's of her volition. She's like, no, it's kind of weird. It's all just women and girls, and the, the actual city of Ottawa rule is that boys under six are not allowed. The men's change room is locked. The blinds are dropped. You cannot have men gaze upon a woman in the swimming pool. Why? Sharia. It is Sharia compliance. That's what it comes down to. And the city can try and explain it away any way they want. That's what it comes down to. They have it at Jack Purcell Pool. They have it at Sawmill Creek Pool. They have it at others. Come September, this will be in pools across the city. No boys over the age of six. But at the University of Regina, they took camps that they've been running for years, and they turned around, and it's like the camps that we've got here in town. You enroll your kid in a basketball camp. They're going to play basketball all morning, and at some point in the afternoon, after lunch, they're going to go for a swim. And all the kids from the other camps, they're going to be in the pool as well. And there's going to be boys, there's going to be girls, there's going to be cats, and there's going to be dogs, and they're all going to be living together in the pool. But at the University of Regina, they decided, no, they're going to change that. Now, my friend John Gormley, guy I've interviewed many times, he's the king of talk radio in Saskatchewan on Rolco Radio out there. They used to be partners with us here. Uh, John Gormley interviewed the man I kept quoting to you last night. Harold Reimer, he interviewed the Dean of Kinesiology on this very issue earlier today on his own talk show in uh, Gormley on CKOM in Saskatoon, CJME in Regina. And he talked about this issue, and he kept asking Harold Reimer to explain what they'd done. And Reimer kept trying to make it sound like, well, you know, we've always done this and we've done it before, except when we haven't and maybe this. And, but let me just play you one of the questions and one of the answers that John Gormley put to Harold Reimer, the dean of kinesiology, the man in charge, in charge of this program earlier today. So in, in this case, then, um, with the, the young refugee kids, they were then deliberately streamed into boys only, girls only programs? Well, I think uh, one of the ways you can, I, I would prefer to think about this, is in kind of the following way. Um, so swimming is a very, very common 
experience for most Canadian boys and girls growing up here. Right. Uh, you did, I did, we all did. Uh, it was one of the things you do in the summertime. And uh, one of the thoughts of um, the, the people putting together this uh, specialized programming for new Canadians and in terms of giving them all kinds of uh, typically Canadian sorts of experiences and helping them integrate into uh, our society is, you know, how can we provide a really common recreational experience that most, new, most Canadians have um, and still allow them to maintain their own uh, values and ideals or those of their family and, uh, and not make them compromise uh, those values. And if we can do that in a way that uh, makes sense, then why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we do that? Well, you wouldn't do that because that would be compromising Canadian values. That's Harold Reimer on with John Gormley, the King of uh, Saskatchewan Talk Radio, earlier today. He says if we can give them a Canadian experience without having them compromise their values, why wouldn't we do that? Lest any of you think that I am anti-immigrant, that I am anti-refugee, check yourself, just please. My parents are immigrants to this country. My own parish is sponsoring a Syrian family. Time and again in my life, I have been, con- well, I said last night on the radio, if in my neighborhood growing up, if you had Canadian-born parents, you were the weird one. We had Vietnamese boat people in the neighborhood. I have dealt with refugees from around the world over, throughout my life, including dealing with Syrian refugees now. But what is different now is that instead of welcoming people into our country and saying, welcome to our country, here's how we do things, now urban liberal elites turn around and say, welcome to our country, let us adopt your ways of life. That is not a Canadian value. I'm going to bring you a story later on today, and I wanted to bring this back tonight because I think it is important. And we've started a petition over at The Rebel called StopSharia.ca. Because essentially what Dean Reimer is doing is bringing Sharia law and Sharia views to Canada through a publicly funded university. And what the city of Ottawa is doing with its women-only swims that don't allow boys over the age of six to do or to be admitted is bringing Sharia to Canada. So I invite you to sign our petition at StopSharia.ca because this is accepting and embracing Sharia law in Canada, which is the antithesis of Canadian values. Most immigrants, most refugees come to this country for what we stand for. They come to this country because of what we are, and they want to embrace what we are and what we stand for. They want to embrace the diversity. They want to embrace the plurality. They want to embrace our traditions and our cultures. And yet well-meaning urban liberal elites at every turn will try and say, we've got to suppress our Canadian values. We've got to suppress our Canadian ideals. We've got to suppress our Canadian way of life and adopt the way of life from the country that these people are literally fleeing. If you disagree with that viewpoint, I invite you, go to the petition 
stopsharia.ca. Sign your name now. Let your voice be heard. Top of the next hour, we're going to be talking to David, the Menzoid Menzies, about another version of this. You won't believe what's happening. It's down near Toronto this time. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. To you, he's rebellious. To official Ottawa, he's disdainfully insubordinate. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. we got a full show for you tonight. We've got Peter Kent standing by. He is the Conservative Party of Canada opposition critic on the issue of foreign affairs. Did you know that it was two years ago today that the genocide against Yazidis started? Two years ago today that Islamic State decided that they were going to try and wipe out an ethnic and religious minority, a subset of Kurds in northern Iraq that have been there for millennia. Maybe you've heard of Nineveh? If you remember your biblical history, then you know Nineveh. Nineveh is where Jonah was supposed to go and take God's message. And he refused to go, and he ran away. Where did he end up? I don't want to sound like the newsboys here, but he ended up in the belly of the whale. Sorry, showing my VeggieTales roots there. Nineveh is where the Yazidis... A group in northern Iraq of about 400,000 before the genocide started. That's where they were centered. More than 5,000 killed, thousands more displaced, thousands taken into sexual slavery. The world's been watching for two years without doing enough. We'll talk with Peter Kent about that. Coming up at the top of uh, the next hour, David the Menzoid Menzies will join me to discuss an issue near and dear to his heart. This is the issue of an attempt to bring about Sharia compliance to a pool in the Toronto area, in Mississauga, with claims of Islamophobia that do not, they don't hold up. Not at all. Solomon Friedman, criminal defense lawyer, firearms law expert, he'll let you know whether or not you are facing the possibility of being a paperwork criminal. Yeah, the RCMP entered uh, issued a memo turning literally hundreds of thousand uh, hundreds of thousands of Canadians into paperwork criminals overnight. We'll talk to him. We'll also speak with Howard Anglin from the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And earlier today, I was at um, Maxime Bernier's news conference on lowering airfares. We'll bring you some of my back and forth with Maxime Bernier. All of that later in the program. Right now, though, Hillary Clinton who has gone around the world making millions by having her husband give speeches in exchange for huge donations to the Family Foundation, which mostly enriches her and Bill, and then her turning around and making State Department decisions in favor of the countries that gave money. Well, now she's turning around and trying to attack Donald Trump. And she's attacking Trump on the issue of outsourcing at his companies, in particular things like his clothing line. 
The bulk of his products sold by his daughter Ivanka, she says, are made overseas. Look, I bought a couple of Donald Trump ties when I was in the States. They used to be sold at Macy's. They're very nice ties, very TV ready. It's why I bought them. Are they made outside of the United States? Probably, like most ties, they are. But now Clinton is launching a website listing places where the items could have been made instead of being made overseas. You can go on the website and you can see about 100 places around America where Donald could have made ties, shirts, suits, furniture, barware right here in America. You know what else uh, you know you could make a map of? Places where Hillary Clinton could have gone to make speeches that didn't involve selling out to foreign governments. Just throwing that out there. Bit of fun news, U2 is in the studio making a new album. And for those of us that would like to see them in concert again, according to ABC News and David Blostein, they're going to be on the road again. The Spanish YouTube fan page YouTube en España spoke with fan members Bono and Adam Clayton this past week, and they shared some tidbits about the group's plans for its upcoming album, Songs of Experience. Bono stated the album is not finished yet, but you will like it. Continuing, in terms of lyrics, it's stronger than war. It has more clarity. Clayton was asked about the time frame for the album's release and the launch of the band's next road trip, to which he responded, soon in the next six months. David Blaustein, ABC News. If you're a YouTube fan and I've seen them here in Ottawa, I've seen them in Toronto, I've seen them a few times, that is fantastic news. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, we'll connect with Peter Kent, Conservative Party of Canada foreign affairs critic on that genocide issue. You don't want to miss it. Stick around. More to come. Revolution starts with a rebel. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. It was two years ago today that the massacre at Sinjar started to take place. This is an area in the province of Nineveh in northern Iraq. It is essentially the home of the Yazidi people. If the name Nineveh sounds familiar, maybe it's because you remember the Bible stories of your childhood. Nineveh is the town that Jonah was sent to go and spread the word of God to. Of course, if you remember that story, he decided he wasn't going to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go. He ended up in the belly of the whale. It is an ancient city. And the Yazidi people are an ancient ethnic and religious minority in that region. And the Nineveh province is essentially their home territory. Two years ago today, the Islamic State began their siege of the Yazidi people. Just one of many genocides that this bloodthirsty cult has engaged upon. Peter Kent is the Conservative Party of Canada foreign affairs critic. He joins me now. And, um, Peter, thanks for taking the time today. I understand that tomorrow you'll be joined by many of your colleagues at Queen's Park in the Media Theatre to 
call for greater action, greater recognition of what's been going on in the last two years? Yeah, actually, Friday, uh, Friday uh, early afternoon, we'll be um, we'll be uh, gathering uh, uh, for a media event and also to to meet with stakeholders um, uh, and the um, the cross section of the Canadian community that have been active in sponsoring uh, the, the privately sponsoring uh, refugees across the the persecuted uh, religious and ethnic minorities. Including, including the Yazidis, and the Yazidis have been uh, among the most difficult to protect because uh, when, when the genocide, now officially recognized genocide by the United Nations and by, by uh, democracies around the world, uh, and uh, finally by, by our liberal government, um, when it began... Uh, in the Sinjar region, which is very close to the border with uh, with Syria, and ISIS came from all sides, from from both within Iraq um, uh, and from Syria, and as you and as you uh, said, uh, began a, a, a brutal uh, sequence of atrocities of, of genocide, which has been identified and documented in great detail. Um, but most horrifying continues today. Um, there are still thousands of Yazidis in in the control of Daesh uh, uh, terrorists, um, and the United Nations uh, report that was um, that was uh, carried out by the um, by the in- Independent International Commission of Inquiry um, has recommended a number of of immediate actions that all countries uh, who are signatories to the Genocide Convention uh, should be responsible to to take now, sooner than uh, than later. The realities of this of this uh, of this horror are that uh, those who are still captive uh, captives of ISIS um, uh, will not be free, will not be rescued. Until the international alliance, the, the war that is uh, that has been uh, that our government has refused to to recognize as a as a war, but until this until the um, international co- coalition is actually ultimately uh, victorious and ISIS is vanquished and and those Yazidis are released, but there is an equal uh, uh, crisis uh, still within. Within Iraq, where thousands of Yidis, Yazidis are uh, technically uh, internally displaced people uh, and not recognized as refugees well, by the United Nations yeah. High Commission for Refugees. We've spoken with um, Majid El Shafi, a man that I know you are familiar with. Absolutely. He has partnered with the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Toronto, and they are trying to bring in hundreds of former Yazidi sex slaves. They're yes. still Yazidis, but they're no longer sex slaves, who yep. are displaced within their own country. They can't go back to where they came from because they'll be killed. Absolutely. Uh, and yet the government, despite knowing their their horror story, despite hearing it, your colleague Michelle Rempel sat at committee listening to a, a woman of a, a similar background describing what she'd gone through, and they just wanted to play political games instead of, saying, let's help the most vulnerable. We keep hearing that the government wants to help the most vulnerable. 
And yet, whether it's Yazidis, Christians in the region, Shia Muslims in the region, all of them being targeted, along with Druze, Jews, and others, they're just silent on this issue. It's as if they don't want to deal with religious minorities in a region where you will be killed for being a religious minority. Well, yes, and one of the I, I spent a couple of days sitting on that uh, on that committee earlier in in July um, uh, with Michelle, who's who's our lead on immigration. But I must say that all members of that committee, liberals, uh, conservatives, and NDP were incredibly touched by Nadia Murad's testimony. Uh, And I think that uh, when the committee eventually uh, writes its report in September, I can't imagine it not being a unanimous consensus um, and that the uh, liberals will agree that extraordinary measures now have to be taken to change the way Canada identifies refugees. I I hope so, because when I spoke with uh, Majid El-Shafi after he appeared, he said, he appeared to present his proposal, which, as we discussed, is in conjunction with the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Toronto, hardly a, a very partisan political group. And he said he, he was attacked on, on a very personal and political level when he appeared. Well, absolutely. And I was there. And, and the, the, the liberals have named until now, and there were some members of the committee who were following party line. Uh, and who seem to be proud that the government does not recognize um, individual persecuted minorities, which we believe is is absolutely wrong. Uh, and and uh, the previous government, our government, um, ministers had issued uh, directives that the persecuted uh, Christian, Yazidi, other minorities, the Mandians, the Assyrians, uh, were to be to receive priority. Uh, acceptance and recognition as refugees. Uh, that was not possible at the time because the government then, the bureaucrats couldn't get access to many of the places that the Yazidis uh, were seeking sanctuary. But that's not true now. Northern Iraq, uh, in, in the Kurdish uh, uh, region, uh, now is accessible. And in fact, a delegation was there just last week. I understand, and we were told at committee that a, that a um, an immigration department um, uh, mission, a delegation, will is planning or hoping to go if it's not too dangerous uh, in September. Uh, but but the, the evidence that exists is the United Nations High Commissions for Refugees will not certify internally displaced people as refugees. Um, and one of the recommendations from uh, the official opposition, from our official opposition, again, led by Michelle um, as our immigration critic, is that it's now time for the Canadian government to act on the recognition of the genocide and to put aside UNHCR bureaucratic uh, protocols uh, and to finally act to accept uh, significant numbers of the Yazidi refugees in northern Iraq. Uh, We know that there are uh, several thousand uh, in Turkey. Um, And uh, and these are largely the the women and girls who survived the massacre, the genocide. We know that the men were 
uh, murdered by the by the thousands. We know that young boys have been taken uh, hostages. They they've been put into training camps, brainwashed. Ab- yeah, absolutely, and 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 uh, they need to be rescued too. When when the uh, when the coalition war against ISIS uh, eventually liberate liberates their 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 homeland. And the other thing is that that the um, the Sinjar captives have been moved, have been transported and marketed as sex slaves, uh, uh, not only in Iraq but but taken back into Syria. And there's a uh, there's a, uh, a a report, a video report that was released today by the BBC, um, uh, and where I'm proud to say a, a, a Canadian human rights uh, expert, a guy, a Canadian called Bill Riley who heads a group called uh, International Justice and Accountability, have been documenting precisely those responsible, the leadership of ISIS, to ensure that they are eventually brought to justice. I I saw a trailer for that. I haven't been able to watch it yet, but I I look forward to it. Uh, It's a powerful piece. Speaking with Peter Kent, uh, a man who is, uh, his journalism career before he got into politics leaves me jealous still, but he is the conservative foreign affairs critic. Peter, I've got to ask you this one last question before we're, we're out of time. Okay. The bureaucrats continue to tell myself and others in the media who've asked this question, why can you not document refugees by religious and ethnic minority if you say you want to help those who are most vulnerable, that's why they're being killed. Why can't you document it? And they just they act as if this is the worst thing you've ever suggested and that you could not possibly ask someone their ethnic or religious uh, background when they're applying to be a refugee to come to Canada. Do you think that the bureaucrats are being obstinate? Well, I, I think they're definitely misguided, but they are following the direction of the Liberal government. The Liberal government, as I said, uh, some of the members on the Immigration Committee during our hearings in in, uh, early July uh, seemed proud that, in fact, the government-sponsored refugees uh, were being processed without regard to their the level of persecution they they may have experienced or are still experiencing. We know that the privately sponsored refugees are very often uh, uh, brought in by communities that that do uh, that do look for either members of a um, a community that already exists in Canada, uh, a religious community or an ethnic community, uh, and we know that. Uh, as as before with the Vietnamese boat people, the Mennonite Central Committee uh, in Winnipeg has been uh, heroic in their efforts specifically to seek out and sponsor uh, Yazidis, uh, as, as well as uh, the Jewish community, which again, uh, with Operation Ezra, have, have been focused primarily on trying to encourage the government to, to recognize uh, religious persecution and particularly now that the genocide has been has been officially recognized by all of the bodies that that uh, the Trudeau government said uh, hadn't hadn't given that uh, that uh, recognition until until uh, mid June, um, and that in mm-hmm. fact the, the victims I mean all of the religious minorities and and persecuted minorities the the uh, uh, LBGT, everyone should be recognized and and uh, and given sanctuary, 
but the Yazidis particularly, uh, a very small people, are uh, at risk of, of extinction. They're, they're very vulnerable. All right, Peter, Absolutely. thanks for the time. Peter Can, Conservative Party of Canada foreign affairs critic. Uh, we'll speak again soon. All the best. Coming up next, an interview from earlier today with Archbishop Bashar Wadra of Erbil, Iraq, on the persecution being faced. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Insurgent. Believe it. The resistance is here. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Persecution of religious minorities. We were just speaking with Peter Kent, the conservative immigrant, or yeah, sorry, conservative foreign affairs critic, on this issue and what is being done about it. Are we recognizing the genocide that's happening? Relaunched a petition at deniers.ca because the liberal government continues to deny the idea that there's a genocide against Christians or Shia Muslims or Druze or others. They, and they only recognized the Yazidi genocide that started two years ago today because the U.N. told them so. Earlier today, Chris Sims, filling in for Evan Solomon on Ottawa Now, spoke with Archbishop Bashar Wadra. He is the archbishop in charge of Erbil, Iraq. And they spoke about what is going on, what kind of persecution religious minorities are facing at the hands of ISIS. That was a year ago, sir. Back when we knew of the slaughter, as the former prime minister described it, it's a year later, we have a new prime minister, a new government is in power. How is Canada doing in the fight against ISIS and in the attempt to stop the slaughter of Christians, Yazidis, Jews, and other religious minorities in your region? I, I do believe that we do need to work more to stop ISIS as soon as possible. Um, and to put an end to this tragedy, and then to start also dealing with the consequences of the last two years of of the invading of of Iraq by ISIS, Iraq and Syria of ISIS. We have to deal also with the consequences, not just... But to do that, we have first to stop ISIS. And I think the sooner we stop it, the better. That's... uh, There is... I mean, it's like a cancer. You have to terminate it, and then to deal with a recovery package, which would also help the patient. There, there is a cancer, and that cannot. And this cancer is spreading all over uh, the global now. It's not just a, a Middle East problem; it's a, a global problem now. And we've seen last week what they what they have done in in Paris, and probably we expect more. So I do believe that we have to act. Uh, in a way, uh, to be decisive, in a, in a decisive way, where we have to stop ISIS and also try to deal with the humanitarian and also with the victims of ISIS. How is Canada doing? Are we doing our part? Are we doing enough? What can we do that would be more, that would help you, people like you and people you represent fight I- ISIS? I think uh, Canada could do, uh, as we said, in, in, the military, to, in the military action with the humanitarian aid also. 
and also at the same time raising awareness, leading, uh, leading the, uh, the, I mean, uh, the world in, in, in that defense because you have a long tradition of supporting the marginalized and persecuted people around the world. So it's it's one of it's 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 the responsibility. Sorry, Archbishop, you're breaking up a little bit there. I'm just hoping you'll be able to get into an area where it's a bit of a better service there through your network. But if I can ask you, sir, are we doing, should we have the jet, should we have the jets? Should we have CF-18s in the skies? Right now, to be clear, we have, I think, tripled our special forces on the ground. They, they run under the radar. A lot of people don't talk about them. But we have really increased our ground forces there, at least through special forces fighting ISIS. Do you want uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force to be back up in the skies as well? I want all the. I mean, I want to to defeat the ISIS by all means. So, uh, if if your if your jets is is needed, please send it, because you we need a lot of efforts. It's it's not just a fight of one country. It's a fight of of the whole world. It's uh, so you have to you have to be there and you have to be strong and leading in in a, in a leading position as well. I've described years ago uh, at a security forum that was being held in Halifax, I described ISIS as an international death cult, meaning that it knows no borders. It has declared a geographical caliphate in Dabiq, mm-hmm. which is in between uh, Syria and Iraq. So geographically, they do have a home base that they are spreading from and controlling from. But they put out the call of the caliphate years ago uh, through their online messaging and through their very professionally and slick uh, slickly produced magazine, they've said that people need to act. If they're going to be inspired by ISIS, they can act alone, that they don't need to have a so-called calling card from ISIS and that they can act alone. Can you describe, sir, because you've been there, you've seen this, you've seen what has happened to Christians and other people who are suffering at the hands of this genocidal death cult. Can you please describe for our listeners here in Canada what ISIS is doing to people there? ISIS, what they've done uh, and what they are doing is giving the, the three choices: Islam, and you have to obey the way that they 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 understand Islam, the way they live Islam, or you could you could live there as mm, without rights, without any human rights, and giving taxation because they they they, do, they believe that they are protecting you and giving you the chance to live, or leave everything, uh, or face the sword. So that's that's the way. So that's the way to live under the the what what they call the caliphate, the, the new caliphate uh, state. So this is the and when they get to the area, they destroy all non-Muslim uh, sites like churches, uh, shrines, uh, manuscripts, crosses, whatever that has uh, a symbol or a sign to. Uh, non-Islamic uh, presence. That they have the way the way that they live. The uh, Islam is of the seventh century, and you could imagine. So that's uh, this. This is uh, what we call the culture of death. Is is, is there? Uh, of course, within within 48 hours, we have received 150 25,000 Christians who were uh, forced to be to leave their villages and. Uh, and cities, but with, with with them also there were hundreds of thousands of, of uh, also of Yazidis uh, who were also forced to leave their uh, their cities. 
not just uh, were forced to leave, but uh, some 3,000 girls until now has been, have been enslaved, enslaved, literally enslaved by ISIS. And to put a point on it, these girls, mm-hmm. some of them very young, are being taken from their families by force and yes. raped repeatedly. Raped raped and sold and raped and sold it's it's it's, it's horrific i mean uh, you I, you cannot speak about it because um, some of the girls when when they've been rescued uh, the, their stories is is really terrifying one the way the, the way they've been treated the way they've been raped it's it's beyond comprehension and beyond description yeah, yeah. i think for many of us it's just evil it's evil evil Totally evil. What what can what can Canada do? People listening right now, they're heart sick. They're frustrated. They hear the the pain in your voice. They they want to help. What would you like listeners to do? What would you like the Canadian government to do? What more can we do? Can we bring in more refugees? Can we save more Christians? Can we find more Yazidi women? Can we fight ISIS more militarily? If we, in the one minute we have left left Archbishop, what would you I like think- Canada to do? I think, uh, to, as I said, to have a, a leading role in fighting and defeating ISIS, and it will be defeated, definitely it will be defeated. And second, helping uh, the, the refugees and IDPs also to, to maintain their presence there, to be closer to their original lands once being liberated so they could go back again. And then helping rebuilding these liberating lands and also helping the, the the refugees who are in in Jordan and Lebanon and uh, and in Turkey, uh, because they really live in a very uh, dreadful way of of living. And I think most important is to raise awareness that this evil cannot be spread. We have to stop it. We have to stop it, and it's our responsibility as a as a people of a goodwill. Uh, to stop this evil from being there and everywhere. Archbishop, to be clear, do you think we're doing enough now? If you were speaking to Prime Minister Trudeau right now, do you think that he's doing enough right now? I would urge him to do more. Archbishop Bashar Wadra of Herbal Iraq speaking with Chris Sims earlier today. I'm Brian Lilly. When we come back, David the Menzoid Menzies on more regarding creeping Sharia, swimming pools in Canada. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. A rebel? You know it. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. We've told you about the uh, Sharia swimming issue in Regina. I've told you about the Sharia swimming issue here in Ottawa. And I've mentioned that this is something that's going on across the country. Well, my colleague at The Rebel, my old Sun News colleague, David the Menzoid Menzies, has been following a story that's been deemed Islamophobia by the Toronto Red Star, that erstwhile organ of the Liberal Party of Canada. But Menzies, as he's wont to do, dug a little deeper and found out more. He's on the line with me now. And Menzies, in light of what you heard about Regina, in light of what you've heard about Ottawa, fill us in on what's going on in Mississauga. 
Well, Brian, uh, about a week or so ago, there was an incident at the Applewood Heights swimming pool. It's an outdoor pool in Mississauga, Ontario, as you mentioned. And there was a um, girl, she's 11, uh, her name is uh, Bira, and she was there with her mother. And basically what happened is that she was in the shallow end of the pool. And by the way, I should point out that um, Bira uh, is autistic. Uh, she was in the shallow end of the pool and everything was fine, but then she ventured towards the deep end of the pool and a lifeguard noticed uh, little Bira struggling to stay afloat. So then the lifeguard, as the job ent- uh, title entails, uh, Brian, you're standing on guard to uh, <laughs> save people's lives, uh, performed her duty. She informed her that you couldn't swim in the deep end because she hadn't passed her swim test. And that is the pool policy. Um What happened then is that her mother was going to have no part of this, evidently. She wanted her to, you know, swim to the deep end. If Bira wanted to swim to the deep end, okay. Hey, Uh, hey, look, all of us can be advocates for our kids, right? We can jump in at any point and say, hey, come on, my kid can do it. Uh, Well, I think when we're dealing with deep water, though, Brian, you better be bloody sure your kid can do it because the flip side of that is, you know, a potentially a death sentence. Now, to accommodate the mother, as per pool policy, they said they she would have to enter the pool so that she would be within an arm's reach of the daughter. Well, lo and behold, uh, mother said no because of religious reasons, which is to say that there were members of the opposite sex at the pool, and besides, she hadn't uh, bothered to pack her burkini for this excursion, so she just had her street clothes. So then what happened is that the lifeguards, rightly, I think, uh, called security to have the duo marched out of there because they clearly were not going to obey the rules. Now, I think what's happened in the in the aftermath, of course, the, the mother, you know, this is the way it plays out these days, runs to the um, Toronto Star screaming racism, which is kind of odd, Brian, because I didn't know Islam is a race, but, you know, oh, well. And, um, uh, you, know, you know, that's like claiming that anti-Catholicism is racist. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's no Catholic race. But but that that was indeed the he- the headline in the newspaper using racism, uh, and do but, journalists are ignorant buffoons quite uh, often, and and perhaps the editors who are writing the headlines as well, and so Brian, um, the the point of the matter is, Applewood Pool isn't anti-Muslim. There are probably, as we speak, Muslims swimming in that pool right now. That is to say, the Muslims who are obeying the rules of the pool, and not like the mother. Um, feeling more beholden, I don't know, to Sharia law from her native Pakistan than Canadian law that exists in Mississauga, Ontario. And it was kind of pathetic to see the Mississauga powers that be uh, throw the lifeguards under the sub, if you will. And it, <laughs> see how I reverse those letters? Isn't that pretty clever? See that Ryerson degree I, is coming in handy sometimes, I like it, right? yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they threw them under the sub because... They issued a groveling apology uh, to the mother, uh, an apology, by the way, Brian, that wasn't accepted. Uh, She says that the apology is meaningless and that her family would likely never return to Applewood Heights. And here's where I speculate. All right, fair enough. Yeah, oh, yeah. But here's where I speculate. Um, Do you get 
the feeling with your spidey senses, Brian, that there's maybe an anterior human rights complaint being contemplated? Kaching, you know, kaching. Oh, I, I I think so. Look, I um, I was uh, I played a clip from my friend John Gormley earlier today. He was interviewing the uh, the head of the kinesiology department, the guy in charge of the summer camps out in Regina, where they had to segregate it swim. Yes, and he's taking calls on this, and he had a guy call in who said, "Look." I am outraged at this liberal fool who did this. He said, I've helped three Muslim families who were refugees come to this country, and they all let their kids go to the pool, and he named the pool. I don't know the town, but he, you know, he named the pool, and they all go there, and they all let the boys and girls swim together. And when someone questioned them why, they said, why are you doing that? Aren't you Muslim? You should stop that. And they said, get lost. We're in Canada. Exactly. So and you're in Canada, you follow Canadian rules. Isn't that what this mother should be doing? Well, I would think, Brian, and... Um, you I, know, I've had my kids fail the swim test, by the way. Uh-huh. No matter how much I've advocated for them, they have <laughs> failed the swim test at various times. Yes, and, and, and I think what we're dealing with here is perhaps a technicality in the rules, because this policy of the, uh, you know, a parent has to be in the pool an arm's length, applies to children. I think the age range was up until nine. This girl is 11. The thing is, though, we have to point this out. She's autistic. So she is a special needs daughter. And let's be honest, Brian. Does anyone, anyone believe that the lifeguards on duty there had anti-Muslim feelings, that they were Islamophobic, that the reason why they went and uh, caused this scene, if you will, was because of some kind of uh, bigotry? No. They saw a little girl Mm -hmm. struggling to stay afloat. And what are we supposed to do now? As a lifeguard, are you supposed to turn a blind eye because of cultural sensitivity? And I guess, oh, well, um, the child drowned, but at least you weren't culturally insensitive. Only in the minds of Toronto Star editors would this be Islamophobic. You know, uh, as our friend Tarek Fatal will point out time and again, the Toronto Star is the greatest enabler of people that want to, you know, force Islamic ideals, Islamist ideals upon the Canadian public. And we're seeing it more and more. You mentioned, uh, you know, what's happening in Regina. I can tell you there is a pool. What's happening in in Ottawa, my local pool. They've got a Sharia swim every week. As does the Dennis Trimble uh, pool in, uh, in in Toronto. This, this came to light in a Toronto Sun story a few years back, uh, Brian, where a father brought his uh, daughter to an all-female swim and was mortified when he sat down to watch her swim that the staff came around and pulled all these blinds down. They completely black out the pool. Yep from prying male eyes, right? And this was just a man that wanted to watch his daughter have her swim lesson. I I showed up. I I dropped my daughter off uh, to go swimming with her friends. And uh, I know the pool. The kids have been there many times. Went by to pick her up early, try and say, hey, come on. I'm here. Let's go. Not allowed near the pool deck because I might see a woman bathing. And and that, and that would be wrong. They also, by the way, take male lifeguards off uh, duty. Uh, that's the city of Ottawa's Sharia swim policy. No boys over the age of six allowed in the pool. And you know what the perverse irony here is, Brian, is that the liberal left, the progressives, were all supposed to be equal. 
There should be no racism, well, no sexism. And, and, and I'll also point out, David, that uh, most immigrants come here for Canadian values. They go to, they come here to escape what they leave behind in their former country. That's what most of them come here for. Yes. So what we have then is the, I guess, the lunatic fringe, if you will, that make an outcry. We have these white liberal um, city administrators and white liberal reporters and editors at the Toronto Star that are the ones, you know, going to bat for Sharia, Sharia law in this country mm-hmm. when they should be taking up the position, as you mentioned, of Tariq Fatah and standing up to this. And, well, standing up for Canadian values, at least. Got to leave it there, Menzoid. Great talking to you, as always. David the Menzoid Menzies. You can follow him on Twitter. You can follow him at therebel.media. Coming up next, Solomon Friedman, your firearms law expert. If you happen to own one of the most common rifles in Canada, are you a paperwork criminal? We'll get into that back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. So whether you're a gun owner or not, I want you to pay attention to this story because this is about fundamental justice. This is about how our system works, how it should work. The fundamental question is, should police be able to change the law without going through Parliament? Because, in effect, that's what the Mounties have done. They've taken a magazine for the most common twenty-two rifle in the country. There's more than 1.2 million of these magazines that have been imported into Canada in the last 35 years. It's for a Ruger 1022. It's a 22 rimfire rifle, the type of thing you'd go up back and maybe shoot a squirrel with. Uh, maybe it, you know, plink off some targets. This type of thing that boys across the country shot for decades before everyone became afraid of guns. One of the most common rifles in the world, in fact. But now the magazine for it, if you've got a high-capacity magazine, is illegal. Now, high-capacity magazines, 422s, are legal. That was the decision of Parliament when they crafted the Firearms Act. But it was a memo from the RCMP that changed it for one specific magazine. And that's leaving a lot of people wondering, are they criminals? Are they not? Can they can they alter the magazine? Will that make them a criminal? What do they do? Solomon Friedman is a criminal defense lawyer here in Ottawa. And Solomon, if if I happen to own one of these magazines and if I were your client, we're all speaking in hypotheticals here because nobody wants the Mounties at the door. What would you tell me to do? Well, the first thing I would do is tell the RCMP to go jump in a lake because <laughs> they could not be more wrong about their interpretation of the Firearms Act regulations governing magazine capacity. Their position is absolutely contradictory. Um, it makes no sense. People need to understand what exactly the RCMP have done here. Uh, what they have said is, although for Every other 22 rifle, there is no limit on magazine capacity. That's a decision, as you said, Parliament has made. So you can have a 50-round magazine for a 22. You can have a 100-round magazine. You can have a 150-round magazine mm-hmm. um, for a 22 rifle. 
However, for a 22 pistol, there is a magazine limit of 10 rounds, like for all pistols. And here's where things get kind of interesting. Uh, the Ruger 1022 rifle has been produced for decades, as you said. It's a standard 22 rifle. In 2007, Ruger came up with a brilliant idea. They said, this rifle is so popular, we should make a pistol that accepts the same magazines. And that pistol is called the Ruger Charger 22 pistol. Now, the magazines from the rifle happen to fit just fine in the pistol. Okay, and but but let me ask you this. If I happen to have a 25-round magazine for my Ruger 1022 rifle, and I put a 25-round magazine into the pistol, am I committing an offense? Well, what the law actually says is that the classification of a magazine is based on what kind of firearm it was designed or manufactured for. So imagine this scenario, Brian. Somebody goes out and they bought a magazine in 2005, before there even was a Ruger Charger pistol. There's no way that magazine could possibly have been designed for, manufactured for, a pistol, because the pistol didn't exist you when, could have a, bought, when the magazine you could was have bought an, You could have bought it when you and I were in diapers. It's been around that long. Absolutely. And notwithstanding that, the RCMP believes that somehow they are capable of going back in time and reclassifying all of these magazines as being now either designed or manufactured for a pistol. It is absolutely uh, absurd. So at its fundamental core, this is an issue of the Mounties trying to change the law without going through Parliament, as far as I see it. Am I you wrong? This is, this is a case, really, where the RCMP's notion of public policy and public safety trumps the proper interpretation of the law. They don't like but, people but, but there's no devices. public safety issue here because there's been no crime spree committed with 22 rifles or 22 yeah. pistols using this magazine. No, and, you know, I would know that better than anyone. I can tell you as a criminal defense lawyer, I have never seen a criminal offense committed using a 25-round uh, 22 rifle magazine. <laughs> but that doesn't change the RCMP's point of view. The RCMP, that is the bureaucracy that's controlling the firearms program, want fewer guns in civilian hands, and they want fewer high-capacity magazines, even if they're legal. And what they're willing to do to get those out of people's hands is to come up with a completely convoluted and internally inconsistent interpretation of the law. So they issued a memo. This is how the law changed, because, there, as I said, there's one and a quarter million of these things have been imported into Canada in the last 35 years. And all of a sudden, people are made into criminals by a memo being issued? How is well, that possibly right? You know, one of the fascinating things about this, as you say, is the process. Ordinarily in Canada, when the government wants to change the law, they have to publish it in the Ontario Gazette, in the Canada Gazette, in order to put the population on notice that, hey, guess what? That which was previously legal is now illegal. That is not the case here. The RCMP have basically been quietly circulating among firearm dealers and retailers at this point uh, a memo saying, we now believe that these magazines are prohibited, which means that the countless number of gun owners that I know personally and professionally who Hun own these Hundreds devices, of thousands is the estimate. Hundreds no, of thousands. No doubt. Our today, 
as of now, according to the RCMP, subject to criminal charge, arrest, and potential imprisonment for owning objects that they bought legally at retailers from the entire to Cabela's to Bass Pro from coast to coast. It's outrageous. So there, there, I understand that people are saying, well, don't worry. I mean, it, look, you're only allowed 10, so just pin the magazine. That's essentially you put in a mechanism that stops it from accepting more than 10 rounds. And this is something that's been done for, to firearms for years. But I understand there's a lot of gun owners who are saying, hold on. Well, the way the law is written, if I tamper with this, I could actually be uh, in violation of other laws. Well, you know, the problem is even more fundamental than that. People need to realize that if these objects are illegal, then your possession of them at this moment is a crime. Going out and pinning them doesn't mean that you haven't committed the original crime. It just doesn't mean that tomorrow you'll be committing the same crime. So anybody who's criminally liable right now as of this moment, because there's no government amnesty program, the government hasn't announced anything about this, in fact, then... Your possession today is a criminal offense and subject to the same penalties that I talked about. So pinning them might mean that you're not in possession of them tomorrow, but it doesn't mean that you didn't commit that criminal offense and you're not liable to the criminal penalty. And I mean, I think to most people, whether you're a gun owner or not, whether you like guns or you dislike guns, that's fundamentally unfair. People should not be turned into criminals for doing nothing more than buying absolutely legal property. You are a lawyer, criminal defense lawyer, an officer of the court, someone that takes the law and the process seriously. Should police have the power to make someone into a criminal by altering the law? I don't think Canadians would accept police changing the regulations and the law around sexual assault, speeding, drug possession. They would not accept police having that power. Should they be allowed to do this for gun owners? We live in a country where we cherish the principle of parliamentary supremacy. Parliament is supreme. Parliament makes the laws. That makes sense from a democratic perspective. We didn't elect the commissioner of the RCMP. We didn't elect any of the bureaucrats or the technologists in the firearms laboratory. We didn't cast a single vote for anyone like that. It also makes sense from a fairness perspective. We get to debate laws in Parliament. We, if we don't like the laws that were passed, we can vote the bums out in the next election. You can't do that with the RCMP. I mean, it is so fundamentally undemocratic and unfair that firearms owners are singled out uh, for this type of treatment. I think that whether you like guns or you don't like guns, you have to recognize that if the RCMP is doing this today when it comes to Ruger 1022 magazines, you know, and they're allowed to, then what's next? What will they decide next that they don't like from a public policy perspective and simply criminalize? It's a a serious problem. I know that uh, there are legal actions underway to attempt to rectify it. Um, But, you know, it's something that has to be challenged in the courts. The RCMP on this file on similar Uh, other... uh, On many others, they're wrong. Uh, Solomon Friedman, criminal defense lawyer here in Ottawa. If you are on the wrong side of the law, keep him on speed dial. I know I do. Solomon, great talking to you. My pleasure. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, how do we pick our judges? Yeah, we got a theme going on here. Howard Anglin, Canadian Constitution Foundation. He's next. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News.
always hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Well, from speaking to Solomon Friedman about the RCMP having, unfortunately, the power to change the law without going through Parliament when it comes to firearms, we turn to the issue of the Supreme Court. We talked about this a bit last night. Justin Trudeau made the announcement in the pages of the paper of record for the Laurentian elite that he is going to alter the way Supreme Court justices are picked. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. Transparency, I think, is good. Bilingualism? That's a fool's game. It limits the pool dramatically. Consulting with the Supreme Court justice? Not in favor of it. Getting rid of regional representation? That's a problem. But Howard Anglin, who is the executive director now at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, takes other issues with the way our Supreme Court justices are picked, and he wants to see someone who actually respects the Constitution. He joins us on the line now. Howard, good to speak to you. It's good to speak to you, Brian. Uh, You are, let's just give somebody, uh, the audience, your background, because we haven't had you on before. You are someone who has a law degree from where? Uh, from the New York University, NYU in the U.S. So you're called to the bar in. Sorry, you you can practice in Canada and the U.S. From what I understand, yes, I'm called to the bar in uh, Canada and the U.S. All right, and you clerked in an American court at a very high level. Yes, that's correct. In the U.S. Court of Appeals, which so, is the level right before the Supreme Court. You understand the law intimately, and you also worked in the Prime Minister's office during the Harper administration. I did. And I try and understand the law intimately, yes. All right. So I just want to give that background so that as you're speaking, people know that you are not just a talking head like me. Because, you know, who am I? I'm just someone that has been reading Supreme Court decisions for a dozen years, sometimes in awe, sometimes in dismay, <laughs> but and oftentimes arguing with them. But I, I don't have a law degree. I, I'm just someone that can read. You've studied the law. What's your issue with the way Supreme Court justices are picked either now or going forward in the future with this new new way that was unveiled in the pages of the Globe and Mail? Well, Brian, where to begin? Uh, I do have uh, some concerns with what was announced uh, yesterday or whenever it was the day before by Justin Trudeau in uh, the Globe and Mail. Um, I, I understand why some people might think, for example, that bilingualism it should be a mandatory requirement. Um, it certainly would be a helpful trait. When I was in the Prime Minister's office, we I was involved in the selection or advising on the selection of uh, at least three Supreme Court justices, and it was certainly something that we took into consideration. It was definitely a plus factor, as Canadians can appear in French or English in the courts. But as uh, Daryl Bricker has pointed out, there's only 17% yeah. of Canadians across the country that say they can carry on a conversation in both official languages, 8% that say that they can actually work in it, 1% say they work in both official languages on a daily basis, 1%. And I would would guess that the large majority of those are in Ottawa or the capital region. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I saw uh, Daryl's statistics, and they're they're pretty striking. Uh, He said something, I think he cited a StatsCan thing, there was something like only 10,000 people who... Uh, speak both French and English at home, which is at least one definition of bilingualism, uh, in Toronto. 
uh, a city of 5.5 million people and something like 4,000 in Vancouver. I mean, it shows you the size of the pool that you're dealing with. And even assuming that the level of uh, fluency would be somewhat reduced from, from that, you're still, that's where you're starting. It's a very, very restricted pool. And I can tell you from experience, uh, because I was involved in federal appointments for about a year and a half, uh, one of the things that uh, this government and future governments will run up against if they insist on a fairly strict bilingualism is they're going to have a really hard time fulfilling other superficial diversity quotas, such as uh, visible minorities, for example. Uh, finding uh, South Asian or East Asian uh, middle-aged person who maybe came to Canada in their teens or uh, 20s who is a highly qualified lawyer and lives in Vancouver or uh, Mississauga or, uh, who also speaks French is going to be a very, very hard task. That pool is tiny. So I think they're going to have some trouble when they're trying to uh, piece together their perfect, uh, perfect candidate who ticks all the boxes uh, for diversity purposes. Yeah, as I've pointed out, uh, Justice Marie Deschamps from Sherbrooke mm-hmm. was not fluently bilingual when she was appointed to the Supreme Court. She was not able to hear cases without the aid of translation or an interpreter in English. We always assume that it's Anglos, just poor English, just can't understand the French. It goes yeah. both ways, and you're going to have trouble finding justices outside of Montreal and Ottawa who fulfill this requirement. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I really think it, the policy fundamentally misunderstands uh, the fact that we are a country with two official languages, but we're not, not everybody and has to be bilingual uh, in order to, uh, to fulfill the Official Languages Act requirement that people can make their case in both languages. This happens all the time, and I don't know why the Supreme Court would be different from any other administrative body or agency in the country uh, where we don't require strict bilingualism, and yet people's rights are, are vindicated all the time. Uh, but, and, and that's bilingualism. Uh, the piece that I wrote... And, and, less on... and if people want to find it, I'll tweet it out in a minute. Okay. It was at newshubnation.com yesterday, among other places. But what were you calling for in the piece that you wrote? Yeah, I was less concerned with how justices are selected. I think at the end of the day, traditionally, this has been an executive prerogative, and I don't really have a problem with with that. And yes, the liberals. Well, e- even up, at it, the end of this system, it will be the prime minister that decides. Yeah. Yes, of course, and any change to that would require a constitutional amendment, which is you and I know is virtually impossible in our system. Um, So I have less concern about how they're selected. I'm really concerned about who is selected. And I'm concerned that the process that's been set up and the people that are being consulted under uh, Trudeau's recently announced policy are the sort of people uh, who uh, who see themselves as the guardians of our current liberal, progressive, legal orthodoxy, uh, which is quite happy with concepts like judicial supremacy. They're quite happy with having a Supreme Court and the judiciary generally. That sees itself as sort of a super legislature to second guess the policy decision. And who I would like to see appointed are more judges who show a little more humility, who recognize that the fact that they're not actually elected or accountable to anybody uh, counsels modesty rather than uh, constant intervention and tinkering with the democratic process and uh, with our rights and the creation and invention of new rights, uh, as we've seen frequently 
in oh. the last few years from this court. Howard, don't be silly. I'm speaking with Howard Anglin. He's the executive director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, perhaps having a bit of a pipe dream, maybe smoking <laughs> pipe at the moment. I don't know. Uh, I, I look at decisions like um, the one that came down on Insight, where yep. this was, this should have been purely a public policy decision. Mm-hmm. Do we allow so-called safe injection sites where people can go and shoot heroin into their veins do we allow this, even though it is against the criminal code, to be in possession of heroin? And mm-hmm. the government of the day, of which you were part, said, no, we don't want to expand this. Mm-hmm. The proponents took it to court, and the Supreme Court, rather than ruling on the law, ruled on social science. Mm-hmm. And this yep. is just one of many examples that I can point to. Like I say, I, I may not have a law degree, but I read legal decisions, sometimes in dismay, and this was one of them. Yes, and I would encourage everybody to read them. I mean, I, a, a reasonably intelligent person shouldn't have trouble reading a Supreme Court decision, um, and I would encourage everybody to read them and analyze them, think them through. Do they pass the test of common sense? Are they what we think judges should be saying and doing? And the Insight case is a very good case. It may or may not be good public policy to allow uh, heroin addicts to shoot up in a supervised uh, facility. Um, it's certainly safer for those individual addicts. Uh, and I think different governments are entitled to come to different conclusions as to what the criminal law should cover uh, when it comes to drugs and what exceptions should be made. Uh, it's certainly But that's a public policy judge, decision, though. Exactly. And this then came down to a single trial judge who weighs whatever evidence happens to be put in front of her at the time, and decides that, as between the competing testimony of various experts who say this is necessary or good policy or bad policy, she thought that one side was correct and ruled that way. And then the Supreme Court more or less deferred to, to her original decision. And there is a tradition in the law that appellate courts defer to lower courts on the facts of a case. You're not relitigating, having a new trial at each level. But those usually apply to things that are considered actual fact. Like who hit who first in a bar fight? That's a fact. And it can be resolved one way or another, and it doesn't get relitigated on appeal. What is the best policy for addressing the rampant drug situation in the downtown east side of Vancouver? That's not a fact. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a public policy decision, which in our system has traditionally been left to elected bodies who can then tinker with it, can change it based on evidence, based on experience, what works, they can change it. But once the Supreme Court weighs in and says, nope, the law, the Constitution, not just the law, requires this specific policy, it takes it out of the hands of democratically elected people and doesn't allow them to change it, even if it turns out that the Supreme Court's preferred public policy is a disaster. Speaking with Howard Anglin, uh, Executive Director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Howard, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about one of the cases your organization has been involved in heavily, and that's the Como case. It's something we've mm-hmm. talked about a lot on this show because I I may happen to be a fan of beer and also the Constitution, and this brings them both together. You wrote a piece recently that I thought, was he just listening to me and writing down what I said? The, the whole idea that we need a free trade agreement in this country when our Constitution, Section 121, clearly says, if you make it in one of the provinces, you got to admit it to all. Uh, how ludicrous is this that we're going through this negotiating a trade deal inside our country when we already have free trade deals with other countries? 
It's absolutely ludicrous. You're absolutely right. 149 years ago, the framers of our Constitution, the Fathers of Confederation, wrote into the original Constitution, Section 121, 29 words that could not be clear. They contemplated a single economic trading group block within Canadian provinces. And the people that found our Constitution understood trade. Trade and free trade and uh, tariff barriers and duties were one of the major political issues of the day in the 1860s. Uh, certainly the British Empire, which our colonies were a part, and even after we became a country, we were a part, uh, was founded on free trade principles in large part and on protectionist principles in some cases. So they knew what they were doing, and they used very clear, very precise language to create a single free trading bloc within the new provinces of the new country that they, they were founding. And for the best part of a century, it's been ignored as provinces have protected their parochial interests and at a cost of tens of billions of dollars, a recent University of Calgary study paid it as high as $130 billion a year. It's the cost of Canadians of these short-sighted parochial trade barriers within Canada. All right. Speaking with Howard Anglich, you can find out more about him. He's executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. The website is theccf.ca, not that old CCF with Tommy Douglas. It's the other one. Howard, thanks for the, the time. Term. Yeah, you're, you're reframing the term. I like that. Yeah. And if you want to find his uh, his latest piece, you can find it on my Twitter feed, twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. Just sent it out moments ago. Howard, hope to speak to you again soon. I hope so, too, Brian. Thank you very much. All the best. When we come back, Maxine Bernier has thoughts on making air travel cheaper for you. Not a bad idea. Back in moments. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Hope you're enjoying the program tonight. Hope you're enjoying the range of voices that we're bringing to you. The range of stories. We're getting set to open up the phone lines at the top of the hour. 521-TALK, 521-8255. We're Star 580 on Bell Mobility. Out of town? You know the number, 1-800-580-CFRA. So that's at the top of the hour. We'll open up the phone lines. Email beyondthenews at CFRA.com. Really do recommend that piece by Howard Englund on the Supreme Court. And as I said, tweeted it out moments ago. So if you follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Brian Lilly, you can find it there. You don't even have to be on Twitter to go to that page, twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. You'll just see what I send out. And really, what more do you need? Earlier today, I I left the bunker, and, and it wasn't for coffee or lunch or to come here. I left the bunker because there was a news conference. Now, these are rare as hen's teeth in the summer, but there was one on missing and murdered Aboriginal women this morning. Or sorry, now it's murdered and missing Indigenous women. And they held it to unveil who was going to head up this new inquiry. But they didn't release the terms of reference, which basically made it useless. You couldn't ask questions on, what will you actually be studying? Well, we'll tell you that later. But Maxime Bernier, leadership for 
leadership contender for the Conservative Party of Canada, he held a news conference a bit later in the morning. And it was on the issue of making air travel cheaper for the consumers. He's got several points he wants to do, including privatizing the land that the airports are on. The airports have been privatized, but the federal government has been collecting billions of dollars, $5 billion over the last uh, couple of decades in rent. Bernier says that's wrong. It shouldn't be happening. He says he wants to open up more competition by allowing uh, greater access to foreign capital for Canadian airlines. He wants to reverse the disastrous decision for Porter and the Billy Bishop Airport, and he wants to bring in more competition. Here's a little bit of the back and forth between myself and Maxime Bernier in that news conference earlier today. Have uh, spent billions, far more than their value in rent over the last several years. Would you then sell it, or would you deem that they've already paid for the land? How, how would you go about privatizing the, the airport lands? No, I think you're right. They already paid for the land, the land, and the asset. Uh, like the Emerson report said, five the the airports uh, paid uh, up to now since 2000 and uh, since 1992. Sorry, five billion dollars. So it's a lot of money. It's more than the cost of the asset. So to do the privatization, it won't be to uh, receive more money from the airport it will be for having a competitive industry. So because the federal government received a lot of money from the rent since uh, 1992. The airports here, as you say, have been paying a lot. Um, would you be accused of subsidizing them if you hand it over? I know that American airports, and we can look at Plattsburgh, Ogdensburg, Buffalo, they comparatively receive subsidies to make air travel cheaper. Um, would you be doing the same and just handing over no, no, because they, they, uh, as you said, they, they, they already paid for it and for the asset with the five billion that they gave to the federal government in the last uh, couple of years. So the way to do that, it would be to do like other countries. This model, it is not working when the Pearson Airport is the fourth uh, IS airport to, uh, to land in. There's a problem there. When 30% uh, percent of, uh, when 5 million of Canadians are crossing the border to take a plane in the U.S. because the cost is uh, up to 30% less, there's a problem there. So the uh, air, transport and, uh, air transport industry has been seen by the Canada, by the government of Canada as uh, 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 a way to, to have more money in the global budget in the budget of the government. So I think it's a time to end that and doing like uh, the Emerson report uh, just uh, told us to, to do. And it's a, it's a great report. Cost Airlines, you mentioned, that asked for the increase to 49% of ownership. Are, are they doing that so that they can raise capital outside of Canada? Or what, what are they looking to do? What are you talking about in terms of raising the ownership? Yeah, what they want to do, they want to raise money for being able to have uh, operation in Canada. And what I've been told is they want to raise money outside the country. It is why they want to, uh, they, ask, they were asking and they are asking right now the federal government to raise the threshold to 49%. And I'm saying, uh, why not 100%? And that would be good. Uh, and we're the, when one of the only uh, major developed countries in the world who doesn't have uh, low cost carriers. And I think it's time for that. So I'm, um, asking the Minister of Transport to do his job and go ahead with that. 
No low-cost carriers in Canada. Interesting point. Uh, Bernier said that one of the barriers is that they can't raise capital. Here's the thing, and I understand where he's coming from because as someone that's worked for a company that owned um, a smaller wireless carrier, when companies try and raise capital to compete with the big guys, if there are foreign ownership restrictions, they can only raise that capital in Canada. So it can only go to the TSX, let's say, and try and raise money there. If they were to go to the NASDAQ, uh, the you know the, the stock exchange in London or Frankfurt, that would be foreign capital, not allowed. So he wants to raise the foreign capital and foreign ownership restrictions so that there's more capital available for low-cost carriers to start up in this country. Now, I mentioned yesterday, Bernier is third in terms of fundraising for the conservative leadership. Got a lot of ideas, but he's not doing so well. So I put that question to him on the fundraising side during his newser. News conferences than the other leadership candidates. You keep putting ideas out there, but Elections Canada numbers yesterday show that in a three-horse race, you're third in fundraising. Does that worry you for the the leadership race going forward? No, absolutely not. Like you just said, uh, yes, you're right. I'm doing a, a lot of. Uh, uh, I want to do a lot of debates with the other candidates on ideas. I'm doing uh, the leadership for ideas, and I think we have the best ideas for Canadians, for having more freedom and more prosperity in Canada. And that was the focus uh, of our campaign in the beginning. And now the focus since uh, July uh, will be more on uh, raising money. But uh, no, I'm not. uh, uh, We are following our our plan for the campaign, and it's going very well. And all our ideas are very well received by Canadians and by the members of our party. Maxime Bernier, earlier today in a news conference, room 130S, the lunchroom up on Parliament Hill. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, your phone calls. Get on the line now, 521-TALK, 521-8255. You got thoughts on Sharia swimming? The genocide? RCMP taking the law into their own hands? Call now, 521-TALK, 521-8255. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five star five eighty on Bell Mobility. Still looking to hear from parents who maybe have been involved in a summer camp that has gone the way of the one at the University of Regina. I've told you that we have these Sharia swims in Ottawa public pools. These are the swims where men are not allowed. The male change rooms are locked. The blinds are drawn. Male lifeguards are taken off duty. This happens in our public pools. I want to play for you again the clip from my friend John Gormley's radio show earlier today where he was interviewing where he was interviewing the dean of kinesiology at the University of Regina. They had a they've had summer camps for years where boys and girls have swum together. But now this year, there's no boys and girls swimming together. And this guy, 
if you listen to the whole interview, this guy just bobs and weaves all over the place. He tries to claim that, hey, look, we had, we, we, you know, we, we, we divide by age and gender already and other things. And so, like, maybe this could have happened here because of the swimming, you know, it's. And then John asks him a simple question. So in, in this case, then, um, with the, the young refugee kids, they were then deliberately streamed into boys-only, girls-only programs? Well, I think uh, one of the ways you can, uh, I, I would prefer to think about this, is in kind of the following way. Um, so swimming is a very, very common uh, experience for most Canadian boys and girls growing up here. Right. Uh, you did, I did, we all did. Uh, it was one of the things you do in the summertime. And uh, one of the thoughts of um, the, the people putting together this uh, specialized programming for new Canadians and in terms of giving them all kinds of uh, typically Canadian sorts of experiences and helping them integrate into uh, our society is, you know, how can we provide a really common recreational experience that most, new, most Canadians have um, and still allow them to maintain their own uh, values and ideals or those of their family and, uh, and not make them compromise uh, those values. And if we can do that in a way that uh, makes sense, then why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't you do that? Why, why wouldn't you promote Canadian values, Dean Reimer? Why wouldn't you do that? As I've said several times, most immigrants, most refugees, they, they come here because they see something they like in Canada. They want their family to experience life in Canada. So why do liberal elites who run so much of our society turn around and say, you know what, instead of introducing kids to Canadian society, Instead of introducing the Syrian refugee kids to how we do things in Canada, let's introduce Canadian kids to Sharia. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? 521-TALK, 521-8255. I'd especially like to hear from you if you have experience with summer camps that are going on this year. 521-TALK, 521-8255, beyond the news, at CFRA.com. Also on the issue... Of guns. You do not have to be a gun owner to understand that it is wrong that the RCMP be able to issue a memo and fundamentally alter the law. Something that was legal last week is no longer legal because the RCMP issued a memo. Would we allow them to do that on the speed limit? Well, the Mounties, they reclassified the speed limit and... Um, And then they informed all the other law enforcement agencies, and that's effectively what they've done here. They sent out a memo to other law enforcement agencies, not just RCMP, but city uh, police departments as well, and said, here's the new rules. Can you imagine the Mounties saying, you know what, it's no longer 50 on city streets, it's going to be 35, or it's going to be 75, or the Mounties deciding, hmm, you know what? Yeah, hugging someone, that's now sexual assault. Saying bad things about someone is now attempted murder. That would be ludicrous. We would not allow the RCMP, we would not allow any police force to change the law 
without going through Parliament or a legislature first. So why do we allow it on the issue of guns? You do not need to be a gun owner to know that this is a serious flaw in our system. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Guy, the Capital Voice. Guy, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, Brian. Again, uh, today, incredibly impressed with Chris Sims's work. Why can't we say the word genocide? Why can't Junior say we are at war? You know, Harper, well, because the, the United Nations has not told him that uh, it's a genocide. I see. So we're, it's all about that. You know, we had, she played a clip today of our leader, Stephen Harper. She played a clip just like dropping aid on dead people. That's what a leader says. Congratulations, Chris Sims. I hope once Evan flies the coop for question period, the first woman in radio actually gets her first name show on CFRA. You deserve it, Chris Sims. Good night. Thanks for the call, Guy. Let's go to Peter in Ottawa. Peter, you're on Beyond the News. Yeah, good evening, Brian. I like I always like hearing Maxine Bernier, uh, some of his ideas, and I think he's going in the right direction as far as wanting to increase uh, prosperity in Canada. Um, but, you know, I'd like to hear a bit more of a, a concrete plan to, to doing that because... Well, what he, I'm not, he, he, as far as plans from leadership candidates, he's the only one putting out a, a, a regular set of policy ideas. So how concrete do you want? I can forward you the email that details all of this. Okay. Or so, you can find it on his website. It's a, it's a pretty laid out plan with four main points. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, maybe you could just uh, read it out there if you've got it right in front of you. Well, I'd have to pull it up, but it's, uh, I, you know, there are, um, let's see, his airline plan. Let me just go over the four main points. And if you want okay. to find out more, you can go to his website. Uh, it is uh, MaximeBernier.com. But, so first of all, airports would be privatized, treated like any other business. One quarter of the price, he says, one quarter of the price differential between Canadian and American airports is accounted for by excessive airport fees. So he wants to do away with the airport rents. Second, he says, foreign ownership limits will be abolished for airlines that operate domestic services. Foreign investors will be welcome to compete in the Canadian air travel market, in particular to connect regional airports that are currently underserved. Third, the unjustified liberal decision to ban jets from flying out of Toronto's Billy Bishop Airport will be overturned. Fourth, more bilateral agreements will be negotiated to allow for more flights between Canadian cities and foreign destinations instead of focusing on protecting Canadian airlines from competition. Consumers' interests would drive Canada's policy. So that's that's the, the short summary. But he spoke for half an hour on this in English and French. Yeah, well, those are those are excellent ideas, and uh, it's you know the airline industry is just one area that we pay we pay too much because of, of protection. We also have a, a cozy little cartel of banks in Canada, the Big Six, which uh, you know we're paying far too many uh, high fees when it comes to you know uh, buying things like mutual funds and buying financial services. Uh, I would like to hear Mr. Bernier make a, a very clear, concrete plan for clarifying the fees which uh, the mutual fund and the companies and the banks are charging. Well, uh, I doubt he's he's going to get into regulating fees, but uh, based on what he's talked about so far, 
opening up competition of airlines, doing away with supply management, ending corporate subsidy. He's about getting government out of the way and allowing free market to take hold. Canadians sometimes, though, I got to say, Peter, Canadians sometimes are their own worst enemies. They complain about the big six banks. They complain about the big three wireless telecommunications companies or cable companies or what have you. And then even when given alternatives that are at times cheaper, just as good, they go to the big guys. We we well, constantly go back to the big guys. Yeah, well, and then they, we the, complain the, about it. Well, the the, the big guys are, are the ones that are spending uh, tens of million dollars on advertising and marketing campaigns. The little guys can't afford that kind of marketing campaign. That's why it's happening. You know, look at the uh, you know the, the banking fees are, are a great uh, a great case in point. You know, same thing. We can't Canadians pay some of the highest, if not the very highest, uh, mobile telephone data rates in the entire world. I'd like Coo-doo. to see Mr. Bernier address that. Have you never heard Kudu? You've never heard yeah, that I, ad? You, I've I mean, also they, heard drop, look, I've had Kudu before, and I've also heard a lot of drop calls with them. This, Same thing with Wynn. This, uh, th- this radio station is owned by Bell Mobility, or Bell Media, partners yeah. with Bell Mobility. We still have ads for TELUS and all the other companies on, on these airwaves. There is competition. Uh, yeah, ha- have you let, ever let, shopped at a Loblaws? Oh, many times. But and let's, and uh, let's have not... you have you been offered a President's Choice bank account? Uh, <laughs> they are a lot cheaper. I know a lot of people that use them. They're a lot cheaper. Yeah, but let, let, let's not uh, let's not kid ourselves that the 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 major the major players in the Canadian market, uh, having kept out a lot of competition, I mean they have a very unfair advantage. We are paying some of the very highest prices for for mobile phone service in the entire world. I would like to see Mr. Bernier address that and find out why that's the case. Well, I uh, like I said, I, I've worked for a company that's tried before. One of the uh, one of the reasons would be similar to what he talked about with the issue of foreign ownership for the uh, the, the air carriers. Um, I, I spoke to the CEO of one small startup that wanted to raise money in foreign markets, and they were not able to. They couldn't raise the the capital to expand in Canada, and right. they were restricted from going to overseas markets to raise the capital because of we have protectionist laws. That that so that would likely be one of his answers. But if you like what you hear so far, keep on his website. Got to go, Peter. Yeah, he, he's got some good ideas. All right, thanks for the call. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. More of your calls when we come back. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five. Back in moments. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five star five eighty on Bell Mobility. If you want to join the conversation, Katie in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Hello. Hi, Katie. Hi. You're calling in on gun control. Absolutely. What what exactly is this about? I just tuned in, but I really want to hear this. So the RCMP, in their wisdom, and I use that term loosely, decided <laughs> that only one rifle, you see, the 22 rifles are not required to have a a magazine limit. 
You can have a 25-round magazine, a 50-round, 30, whatever. But they decided this one rifle, which is the most popular 22 rifle in the world, that their magazine of more than 10 rounds was now illegal. There's more than a million of them in circulation in Canada, meaning hundreds of thousands of Canadians are now paperwork criminals for owning something that was legal two weeks ago. But were they all legalized to have this when they got their license? Like, was it all legit? Yep, and when they bought them, they've been legal for more than 35 years, and the only thing that changed, the Mounties issued a memo. Nothing changed in Parliament. Nothing went through the legislature. No law was changed. The Mounties issued a memo. Oh, you got your radio up. Can you turn that down, Katie? Yes, I will. Oh, sorry. Issued a memo. Just because it's a memo, it's not going to change anything. Well, according to the police, everything has changed now. Yeah, but you know what? And and they I've, and I've, Crown, I've Crown prosecutors will charge people based on this if the police tell them to. Yeah, but you know what? I've had circumstances happen to me that yes. I want to go out, I want to go and register for a gun, I want to have a licensed gun, and I want to have it in my house. And I do. And I have children, meaning that, you know what, I don't want a gun in my house. But I was assaulted, physically assaulted, demolished, completely shattered, like the movie Shattered. Completely ridiculous. Minus the whole craziness of killing people. I have no intentions of that. Yes, I can go out and get a gun. That's for safety. If oh, don't US... ever tell people you're getting a gun for safety in Canada. That's not allowed. No, I, I, I wouldn't do that. It's not, it's, it's not safe. It's, it, people shoot off a gun and they kill a little kid. What are they going to do? Or if a child finds it, they're going to go and kill somebody. I'm not going to do that. Even with a gun license, it's not going to do anything. So these people that's going and having guns and that they don't know that they're going to be charged for having these guns is completely ridiculous. It's stupid. Everybody has their rights, correct? Yeah. We have our constitutional rights. Well, we would think so, yes. Well, you can't go against the Constitution with a memo. Did they get a memo (laughs) to change their criteria of whatever they're doing and their circumstances of of being RCMP? No. I I would agree with you, Katie, and I think this is wrong. Unfortunately, the current government sees no need to ever overturn the Mounties. Well, there you go. You can't. My My uncle was a Mountie. I can tell you that firsthand. My uncle was a Mountie. And he abides by the law, fully and utterly, right to the full extent of the law. Katie, every time I've taken on the Mounties for overstepping their bounds, guess what? I hear from RCMP, current and former, that are upset at how their system or how their police force is being used as a political tool. So the, the, the front line guys, I'm good with. It's the lab rats at the gun lab and the higher ups at headquarters that I have a problem with. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Let's go to Michelle in Ottawa. Ugh. Michelle, you are on Beyond the News, Michelle. Well, I hope that ah wasn't for me. <laughs> no, it's because I can't work the phone lines. Anyway, listen, your your topics tonight are fantastic. And not only are they fantastic, but they're very necessary to speak about. And, uh, you know, you can only turn the cheek so many times before you get a really twisted neck. Um, <laughs> it's true. And so... I don't have a pool experience, but I do have an experience. My mother was uh, has is not well, uh, had has been in a nursing home for a number of years, and initially, upon being put in the nursing home, there was kind of a revolving door from the nursing home to the hospital, nurse home to the hospital. And um, at that time, my father was alive, and so we were sent to Queensway Carleton, and my mother was put in a room, 
and the hospital, it was a two-room, uh, two-bedroom, and there was a curtain in between my mother and a lady, and that lady happened to have the window bed. And uh, so that lady was here from Egypt having some kind of a heart surgery. She wasn't even a citizen of Canada. She had to have two interpreters come. Both those ladies wore the niqab, uh, so they just had, like, you know, the black thing. So my mother's there. She's a, demen- a dementia patient, patient, and so for her, that light is important. Anyway, what got me the most was there was a sign on the door at the hospital that said that my father had to go and ask permission at the desk to visit my mother. No men were allowed in the room. And I said to my really? dad, Really? Oh, my God, yeah. And I said... Are you serious? Like, are you, look, I can't. My father had cancer, and he he just didn't have the fight in him. And he said, you know, they're they're okay. They're really nice. But my mother didn't understand any of it. So to her, these two women floating by speaking another language looked like the Dementors from Harry Potter because she didn't get it. She was terrified. And I just think, you know, they pay taxes all their life. This is, and because my mother was in and out of the hospital so often. You know, you're just exhausted when you're in an institution mm-hmm. like that, and and they're really taxed, and there's only so much you can do, only so much arguing. You got to really pick your fights. So for that, I say, you know what? Welcome to the country. Please join in. Don't yeah. try. Don't try and change it. Please. Well, thank you for the call, Michelle. Oh, can I just say one, yeah, something go else? Go quick. And this is so very important because until you really realize how played we're all being here as to what information we're given and what information we aren't given. Yesterday there was a huge heyday about Donald Trump, and I caught your show last night. And it turns out, lo and behold, is it pronounced Barrett Bart? Is that the newspaper? Breitbart. Breitbart. They had uh, an article today about the con man, and I'll just read you quickly this little uh, thing. I, You know what? I, I got to run, but you did email me that, Well, listen, and, and I'll get to it yeah, after we after the break, okay? But, and uh, one quick other thing. Then on the RT channel, they had a little thing about Hillary Clinton Foundation, and they listed five five people that she's the candidate for the women in the five countries she's taking money from, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, Omar. Yep. Uh, 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 oh, so women don't serves, have rights where they are. None, nor nor do gays and lesbians, who she is their their candidate as well. So, But the story is being spun that Trump is a bigot moron. He's a little mm. fast on the mouth. But the reality is, is they don't want it to stop because because it serves them financially too well. And the story's not being told on CTV right. and CBC. I'll, we don't get those. I'll, I'll read that story from Breitbart later on. Thanks for the call. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. 521-TALK, 521-8255. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Before the break, Michelle mentioned a news article that she'd emailed me from Breitbart. You want to email me? It's easy. It's beyondthenews at CFRA.com. But the website Breitbart has been following the issue of Kaiser Khan. This is the father of, uh, I believe it's Humian Khan, Captain Humian Khan, who died in Iraq several years ago while fighting for the Americans in Iraq. This is the Muslim family that spoke at the Democratic National Convention. Now, they've been getting all kinds of airtime, as I said, as compared to the families of the Benghazi fallen. 
who have come out against Hillary Clinton and pointed out that she's lied about them, she's lied to them, she's called them names, that does not generate a controversy. Hillary Clinton can attack the families of four fallen American heroes and the media goes silent. Donald Trump says something against Kaiser Khan and it becomes huge because he waved, he waved the Constitution at the Democratic National Convention. Well, Breitbart, which I will say is a website that I've written for, it is a website that I used to trust a great deal. Now I, they have gone so, in my view, so over the top for Trump that I take what they write about the U.S. election with a grain of salt. But they do point out that Kaiser Khan is not what he claims to be. He's a lawyer who took down from a website all of his ties to work for Muslim immigration into the United States. He is someone who has written about Sharia trumping the U.S. Constitution, citing people that say Sharia always comes first. So take what you get from the mainstream media with a big bag of salt. Take what you get from Breitbart with a grain of salt. But what you get from the mainstream media, especially Clinton News Network or the others, with a a big bag of salt. Because who knows what their real agenda is other than helping Hillary. Breitbart's open about its agenda. It wants to help Trump. The others claim that they're, they have no agenda, and yet it's all about helping Hillary. You've been hearing in the news today that in Stittsville, there's a pot dispensary opening up. And the local counselor, Shad Kadri, not too happy. And I, I can't say that I blame him. Now, if you remember in the last election, the conservatives ran ads saying, you elect those liberals, you're going to have pot, pot in every neighborhood. You're going to have brothels in every neighborhood because they were all about legalizing the brothels. By the way, just on that point, the whole case that legalized prostitution in Canada was about having a brothel in a suburban neighborhood in Thornhill, Ontario. Nice bedroom community of Toronto. But don't worry, the media party laughed at all that. And they laughed at the idea that there'd be pot dispensaries everywhere. <laughs> it's just going to be downtown like those safe injection sites, which will spread to the suburbs. But now there's a marijuana dispensary opening in Stittsville. Councillor Kadri raises some very good points in his conversation with CFRA's Alison Sandor. It is a facility that is not licensed. So considered under the current rules, it is illegal operation. Now, the, on top of that, the drug that there are, the medicinal drug that they may be providing is also illegal at the present time. And until the federal government rules on the marijuana issue, I don't think that this is a necessary uh, service provider in a community, especially a community where these lo- the, the facility is located within a 50-minute walking distance of an elementary school as well as a high school. Ooh, 15-minute walking distance. Okay, I don't like that, Councillor Katrina. I don't want that out there for you. But you you know the whole so-called safe injection site's going to be a stone's throw from two elementary schools? Yeah. What do you make of this this push for these things straight across the city? As I said, it's not going to be restricted to the Byward Market. It's not going to be restricted to Lower Town. 
It's going all over. Just like some people warned it would. You want a pot shop in your neighborhood? Not a pop shop. Those are great. Don't make fun of the lemon-lime pop from the pop shop. I'm talking about a pot, pot shop. You want one of those in your hood? 521-TALK, 521-8255. Maybe we can hook you up. Let's go to Dave in Ottawa. Dave, you're on Beyond the News. Uh, thanks again, Brian. Um, first of all, what wasn't on my list was uh, the, the whole Trump thing. I only wish Trump would stop sticking his foot in his mouth. No. I mean, um, we don't need a, a crook in the thing, but he keeps sticking his foot in his mouth. And I said about that. Um, I wanted to comment about the... Um, the uh, gun thing, mm-hmm. and then the uh, the genocide. Let's do the gun thing first. And here's my take on it. I'm not coming to the defense of the RCMP, but what I am going to say is that they've gone about their um, process all wrong. Um, the whole thing happened when the, the company that made the 22 caliber rifles came out with a 22 caliber handgun that's compatible body style stock and all to accept those magazines that were being used in the rifles. Yeah, well, I mean, look, Ruger is a worldwide organization, and the law as written in Canada is that the magazine, the legal definition of the magazine is dependent on what it was designed for. Was it designed for a rifle? Then there's no restrictions. That's yeah, the case. Here's, here's the thing. Be, because they've gone out now and created a gun that's sort of like interchangeable, the, the rule should be that if I've got that magazine attached to my twenty two rifle, there isn't any problem. But if I take that same magazine and attach it to my pistol, now I have a problem. Oh, yeah, Dave, this has been a... a, a This is a pistol that's been in Canada for eight years. Is there any public safety issue with this pistol, with or without a 25-round magazine in it? No, no, there hasn't been. Is there a wave of crime created by this gun, this handgun, having a 25-round magazine in it? No, there isn't. So what is the problem here? problem is there's a law against a pistol that has that kind of a now, magazine. So now it's where you put There the is a law that says the legal definition of the magazine and the um, uh, the classification of that magazine is dependent on what it was designed for. And the law clearly says that. It's written into the Firearms Act. The Mounties, there is no gun problem in Canada. And so the lab rats over on St. Laurent Boulevard at the RCMP gun lab decide that they've got to, you know, keep coming up with new ways to create problems where none existed. They're exactly. trying to justify their own jobs. That's what I'm saying. They could have, they could have done their whole PR and their whole uh, rollout of that thing. They in a could totally have shut way. their damn mouths and left people alone. Okay. Uh, we'll differ on that now that the, the um, genocide. these people, genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, the the piece that uh, Chris Sims played this afternoon was just brilliant. And picking up Harper uh, in that debate where he said, "Look, you know, you 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 can't drop supplies on dead people. That ain't gonna work." Uh, totally agreeable. And why nobody picked that up? And and he also said, "We have to stay in there. And we have to liberate these people because that's that's how you're gonna free them." Well, un- unfortunately, the Canadian people didn't see it that way. No, unfortunately, the Canadian people saw just saw the, the good hair, though. <laughs> this is true. 
it's it's sad. It's sad, but true. Thanks for the call, Dave. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. More of your calls when we come back. 521-TALK, 521-8255. Beyond the News at CFRA.com. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Do you like the idea of a pot dispensary in your neighborhood? What about a safe injection site? How long until we're giving out free heroin in jail? And I don't ask that question rhetorically, and I I don't ask it without reason. I remember back in 2010, there was a justice committee in the House of Commons that studied the issue of so-called harm reduction. And I say so-called because it doesn't reduce harm. As addicts that I've interviewed said, why is it harm reduction when I went into the program and my dosage kept going up? So they know that prisoners, despite being inside prison, despite being behind bars, still get their hands on illegal drugs. So they said, well, we've got to make it safe for them to use these illegal drugs. So we need a safe injection site inside our prisons. That was the determination of a justice committee back when the Liberals and NDP held the majority on the committee. And I interviewed Mark Holland, who is back in the current Liberal government. He lost in 2011. He's back now. And I remember saying, so wait a minute. Are you saying that we will give out free needles to inject illegal drugs inside a jail? How long until you start saying, well, we've got to give them the heroin as well? And he said, well, we may have to look at doing that. We may have to look at saying, let's give inmates heroin. And I thought, this is truly madness. But he was serious. So were other members of the committee. So right now we're talking about a Stittsville pot dispensary. What's next? Gord in Kempville. Gord, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, Brian. Uh, you're talking about this uh, pot dispensary in Sitzville. It, mm-hmm. it is open now. Yeah, a- against uh, the law. Yeah, well, yeah, so I couldn't believe it. I was I was golfing uh, this afternoon with a couple of fellas, and we joined up with, it, with a young fella. And he said, uh, you know, I don't know if you, you guys smoke, but... Uh, and you know we don't. And he said, but uh, he said I just got some stuff from uh, from the new uh, 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 dispensary in Stittsville. And he says uh, because it's all legal now. And I I said, well, I don't I don't think it's legal. And he said, oh yeah yeah yeah. And so he showed me all what what he had bought. And uh, and I said, well, do you have a prescription or something? And uh, you know, are you sick? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, I just went in. Uh, to, you know, you get to pick what you want and everything. And, you know, it's all uh, packaged uh, nicely. And he said, uh, then you just uh, you just sign a, a paper uh, and off you go. Right, look, it's going to be legal <laughs> soon enough. We know that. How it, right. will, how it will be sold, we don't know. My but guess is they're going to. Yet. It's not legal yet. <laughs> this store is not legal yet. No. And and my guess is when they do legalize it, they're taking uh, their time. I mean, they're talking about another two years before it's legal. That's right. My guess is that they're going to say it's got to be 
um, dispensed through some sort of you know, government pot store, just like the yes. LCBO, but for pot. Yes. Uh, I mean, I couldn't believe what I was hearing is if this is such common knowledge that this place is open and operating, why why are the RCMP not there? Why are the Ottawa police not in there? Uh, I mean, someone. maybe they have been. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I, I just it, it baffles me how they're able to operate. Yeah, I, I, I got to tell it. you though, Gord, I, I kind of feel for the police. Yeah, they're they're kind of in limbo. They've got people all around them acting as if it's legal. The government saying it's yeah. going to be legal, and yet the law hasn't changed. So, what are I they to do? I understand that, but it's like if the government was 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 to say, well, you know what, we're going to legalize murder in a couple of years. So could you just go out and murder someone, and there'd be nothing done? I wouldn't think so. Now I understand. Now <laughs> pot is far less bothersome yeah. than murder, but I understand your point on on the principle. Yeah, or or if a corner store that wasn't licensed to sell alcohol said, well, you know, to heck with it. Uh, we're going to stock beer and, and, and liquor, and we're going to well, sell it to the public. If Max I, Milk... I'll bet you they would be shut down, like, in a heartbeat. Okay, let's take um, quickie stores here in Ottawa. Yes. In Ottawa, they can't sell beer, but at their quickie stores in Quebec, they do. That's right. If they turned around and said, well, Sobeys and Loblaws, they can sell beer, so we're going to sell it. You're right. They would be shut down quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. Let me ask you, though, Gord, how do you feel about the idea of a pot dispensary in your neighborhood? I don't know where you live in Kempville, but let's say I came into your part of Kempville and said, let's have a pot dispensary down the street from you. How would you feel? I would not feel good about that whatsoever. Yeah. I'm, I'm betting that's the way most people feel. It was the question on our CFRA web poll earlier today, and last time I looked, it was just about... 70% said they would not want that. So I'll scroll down and, and see where it's at now. Thanks for the call. All right. Take care. All right. Let's see. Where are we at? So the CFRA sound off online poll, and you can vote at CFRA.com, says another medical marijuana dispensary is to open shortly in Stittsville. Apparently it's already open. Are you worried about marijuana dispensaries in your neighborhood? You can vote yes or no, and currently the results are... 69.3% say yes, they're worried. 30.7% say they're not worried. Considering the stats we hear on how many people smoke pot, that's a bit surprising. Let's go to David in Cumberland. David, you're on Beyond the News. Hey, good afternoon, or evening, night, Brian. Yeah. Um, the one thing, I, I listen as often as I can to CFRA, and what I haven't seen is you see these things creeping in, I've not heard anyone talk about the correlation between that and how Uber eased in. Okay. And I don't, obviously, I you know, I don't drive a taxi, but, I mean, dispensaries, yeah, they're going to come in, but, you know, who else is going to feed them, whether they're working out of Smith Falls? But the city doesn't seem to do a whole lot about it. As they, you know, Uber's going to be, what, legal in September? Mm-hmm. But they're still operating now. In theory, illegally. Yeah. So. Okay, that, that's an interesting point. Our, is a I mean, ride-sharing... We're, we're, we're letting the dispensary slide 
but we didn't let Uber have any grace room. You know what I mean? Oh no, U- Uber Uber was allowed to slide. Oh no, they, I mean as far as the, the the taxi people in Ottawa, U- Uber got everything that a dispensary would love to have done. They just let them. You know, we give up, you're in. Well, look, there's there's one in, uh, I believe, close to the Hintonburg area. There's one in Stittsville. I'm sure there are others around. Uh, so they are operating, and they are getting to slide. Do you think, as Gord pointed out, that if this were a store selling beer, that it would be allowed to keep going because, you know, well, Loblaws can sell the beer, or would they be shut down? Well, I think... I don't know whether they'd be shut down, but I think if it's at the LCBO or a beer store or whatever, there are going to be a lot of people, be they employees or customers that don't like marijuana, who would say, I, I don't like being behind in line for somebody that's doing this. I mean, how is the beer store going to do it? No, I, I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about that, David. I'm saying they're letting the pot dispensary slide right now. And mm-hmm. as you pointed out, they let Uber slide. But if someone decided, I'm going to start selling beer in my corner store, would they, they, would they, would they turn the same blind eye or would they be shut down that day? Yeah, they'd be shut down in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's how it would go in uh, as well. So we'll see what Catherine decides to do with the whole thing. She's got her hands full, I believe. It, you're talking about the premier? Correct. All right. Thanks for the call, David. See ya. All right. Send me an email. Your thoughts on this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of the issues that we discussed today. It's beyondthenews at cfra.com, beyondthenews at cfra.com. If you're not already following me on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Lilly. And when you go there, you'll see the stories that I'm working on here, the stories I'm working on elsewhere. Make sure that you hit share. Don't just like it. Hit share so that your friends and family get to see it. If you if you like what if you don't like what I'm doing, hey, don't follow me. But if you like what I'm doing, then follow me. And when you see something, you're like, yeah, Lily's right on. Hit the share button because far more people get to see it and they get to spread the word. We know that the media generally marches in lockstep. We know that there is a media party. We know there is an agenda, and it is not well. They try and hide it. We all see it. They don't. They think they're being objective. We see that there is an agenda going on. So if you follow me on social media, just asking you for a little love, spread the word. That wraps the show for tonight. Thanks for joining me. And we'll be back at it again tomorrow. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Remember, as always, I'm on your side.